please open your Bibles again. John 18. John 18. What a great time we can read through John's Gospel. Wonderful. It continually gives up its riches. Alrighty, um, in your handout are some headings. If that is, uh, you like to write notes, feel free to use them. Uh, but we are going to read John 18 together. Let me pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that it is clear, that it deals honestly with us and with you. And please help us to listen carefully today. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Well, Disney films, if you've ever seen one, always leave you feeling happy at the end because the good guys win. But Disney films often rip your heart out and stamp on it. Remember Lotso, the cuddly strawberry-scented bear? Well, he left Woody and Buzz and the toys to die. Betrayal. This is Hans. He's not Prince Charming. He's an evil villain who tried to kill Anna and Elsa in Frozen and claim the throne. Betrayal. And we all know this scene. Simba trying to wake up his dad after his brother, Scar, throws his brother, Mufasa, into the herd of the running wildebeest. Betrayal. Now, betrayal, it's not just a Disney phenomenon, is it? It's everywhere in life. It's the promise of a politician who promises a road and forgets. It's the vows of a spouse betrayed in adultery. It's the friend who betrays your trust and tells your secret to someone else. It's the colleague who secretly skewers you at work so they can go ahead of you in the corporate ladder. Betrayal is one of the most terrible human experiences. It shocks and hurts whether you're 12 or 90. Now, at one level in our heads, we know it's understandable, don't we? Because we're not perfect and people will let us down, but it is always gut-wrenching. Today, as we walk with Jesus to his death, we're going to witness interweaved or interleaved stories of betrayal. And if you remember when it was read, it was wonderfully crafted, wasn't it? There were two scenes overlapping of incredible tension. We were in the courtyard, then in the home, then in the courtyard. Imagine you were a film director and you could film this scene. How would, how would you capture this tension that is palpable there? I imagine kind of having one of those swinging cameras that just kind of swings left, right, as you try and capture what's going on. What John is doing is he's forcing us to ponder, how could anyone betray Jesus? This is Jesus. He's the one who turned water into wine. Jesus is the one who healed the official son, who fed 5,000, who gave sight to the man born blind. He raised the rotting corpse of Lazarus. And he is taught with authority and clarity. Last week he was betrayed by Judas. Scoundrel. Today he's betrayed two times more. By the worst of humanity and the best of humanity. 
And we begin in Annas' courtyard in the middle of the night. So put your finger back on verse 15. Simon Peter followed Jesus and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. We enter the courtyard of Annas. Annas is high priest emeritus. Okay, not the high priest. He used to be the high priest. He's kind of the, bad word, but godfather of the high priest family, right? He's just still there and he's, he's got all the power still. And we're in his courtyard. Now, in those days, you would have a courtyard that lots of houses shared. And so Annas had a house and probably Caiaphas used the same courtyard. Now, this is not the temple. It's not the government. It's Annas's house. It's more the back room behind the bar, guarded by a servant girl. It's private, it's invite only. Surprisingly, the other disciple of Jesus knew the password and is allowed in. Okay, who's the other disciple? We think it's John, okay? The same one that's been calling himself the beloved disciple. But we think it's John, and John knew the high priest family well enough to get into this family gathering. Credible access, isn't it? Actually, he's got so much access, he can get Peter a backstage pass, right? So he brings his mate Peter in as well. And so imagine that, into the high priest's house. Why would Peter want to go in? Why would Peter want to be there? Did he feel like he needed to keep his word to Jesus? Did he doubt Jesus after he just got rebuked for cutting the ear of Malchus? We can only speculate, right? We have no idea why he was there, but we can see his actions, don't we? Look at it. The servant girl confronts Peter. She recognises John. John is a friend of Jesus. One plus one is two. Peter must be a friend of Jesus. Look at it, verse 17. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also, keyword also, are not one of these man's disciples, are you? The tone of her question is like disbelief. Another person who follows Jesus? Really? And then we see Peter. He's cowered by the surroundings. He's threatened by that memory of the ear cutting. He begins his shameful descent. I am not. John then grabs his camera and he pivots and we get to see fire. Why? Because it's cold. We're in the middle of the night. John wants us to know this is not sunshine. We are in the dead of night and it's cold. And then he gets his camera and he goes indoors into Annas' own house. Have a look at it there. Point two, the worst of humanity. Verse 19, the high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Okay, so Jesus is being questioned by Annas, the high priest emeritus, right? Why? Well, they're really worried about Jesus. Really worried. 
And to understand this, we've got to go back to John 11. If you were with us last week, we spent a bit of time in John 11. We're going to go back there again because this was when all the leaders got together and got and thought, we've got a problem with this Jesus guy. Okay? And have a look at it there on the screen. If we let Jesus go on like this, everyone will believe in him. That's not where the sentence finishes. Look at it. And then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. You see, Jesus' popularity threatened their place and their identity. Two key words, place and identity. The place for the Jews was the temple. This was God's temple, God's dwelling, and it was the place of pardon and praise. Their identity was, we're small, but we are God's people. We are God's people. We are God's people. And Jesus was going to take that away from them, they thought. They were going to lose it all. And so the politically astute Caiaphas came up with a solution. We remember it from last week, but here's what they said. So from that day on, they plotted to take Jesus' life. A horrifying verse, isn't it? Some of you know this story. The 20th of August last year, the Russian opposition figure and anti-corruption activist Alexei Navalny was poisoned with Novichok, nerve agent. Oh, I cannot think of much worse than that. Poison to nearly the point of death. We all know who did it, right? That's what governments do when they want to keep their place and identity safe. But not Israel's leaders, right? They're the high priests. They're the heirs of Aaron. Political murder? No! What? Yeah. They're actually more mob than priesthood. Let's go back to chapter 18, verse 19. On face value, the verse looks fine, doesn't it? Annas questions Jesus about his disciples and teaching. But it's actually a sham trial. It's a sham trial and Jesus knows it. Look at verse 20. Jesus answered Annas, I've spoken openly to the world. I've always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together and I've said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who've heard me what I've said to them. They know what I said. Jesus doesn't answer his question, does he? He says, all of my teaching is on public record. Privately, he'd unpacked his teaching with his disciples. We know that, don't we? But publicly, everything that was controversial was out there. Who he claimed he was and what he was there to do. And so Jesus says, Annas, go and question the countless thousands who have heard him. He's actually demanding a fair Jewish trial. The Jews weren't right, the Romans. The Jews prided themselves on an impartial judicial system. It's there in the law, in the Old Testament, and it's there in the rabbinic tradition called the Mishnah. I'll read you some guidelines. Here they are. There's to be no trials at night. No trials on the eve of the Sabbath. 
The trial needs to be in public. The accused person must not be questioned. Witnesses must be brought to prove conviction. Someone must speak on behalf of the opposed, of the opposed, and the high priest should not take part in the interrogation. That was their law. A good law, actually. Laws that we see in our world today. Forgotten. Verse 22, when Jesus had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand. Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Jesus asks for a fair trial. He gets slapped in the face. But Jesus doesn't back down. Do you see it there? It's, it's our few good men moment. Show me the truth. Testify about what I've said is wrong. Show me the evidence. Silence. Anna sends Jesus to Caiaphas. He's the official high priest. So that Caiaphas can take him to Pilate to be killed. Jesus is betrayed by his leaders. They represent the worst of humanity. They run a kangaroo court of lies. They're into deception and murder. One writer I read this week said this, John 18 is a constant mad search for political solutions with no spiritual renewal, justice sacrificed for expediency. The irony behind all this is profound, actually. Because a few years later, Israel's place and identity was taken away by the Romans. AD 69, the Roman army came through and destroyed the temple and took Israel's land. But 24 hours later than this scene, Jesus' death and resurrection accomplished everything that the temple and the people of God stood for. Okay. Before we nod and go, oh man, wow, how bad are they? We've got to do some health checks. Okay? Health check number one. None of us sitting here tonight are immune from putting our trust in place and identity. None of us are. We will put our trust in place and identity over Jesus Christ. And the reason is, is the seen is easier to trust than the unseen. And if you've read any church history, you can basically read from 0 to 2021, watching Christians trust in buildings, watching Christians trust in their nation, their Christian nation, watching Christians go, I'm a Protestant, I'm a Catholic, I'm a Baptist, I'm an Anglican, I'm a trusting our denomination and ignoring the witnesses of Jesus. Now, in our modern world, and especially at OEC, we're not really trusting in our building. We'll get there soon, one day. That's not, our, that's not where we put our trust. That's not our place. But we're secular, cultured people, aren't we? So we put our trust in ourselves. Place and identity in the modern world is called the modern self. In my body, my needs, my feelings. 
And so we kind of go, I don't have to defend a temple in Jerusalem. I don't have to defend me as the independent people of God. No, no, we go, I need to defend me, my happiness at all cost. As a British guy, he says this, at every point where an individual refuses to follow the Lord Jesus, they must march past the evidence with their eyes closed. The healthy disciple of Jesus keeps going back to the witnesses recorded in the Bible. And they listen to the public claims of Jesus and they see his signs fulfill the Old Testament and they grasp who he is, God in the flesh. And what does that matter? It means that our place and our identity are found in Jesus. Where we find our security and identity is not in our feelings, but in the person and work of Jesus. Health warning two. You'll have noticed that nationalism is on the rise across the world. Okay, When people get scared, we retreat to nations. And as that happens, anti-Semitism will grow. Anti-Jewishness. And so we need to be careful to watch our hearts for anti-Semitism. And you may think, that's weird. I had someone walk up to me this morning and go, that's weird. That We're not America. And I said, that's okay. We're not immune from this. Because what we can do as we read John's Gospel is think, oh man, the Jews killed God. They deserve it. They don't deserve their land back. And that can lead to that, can lead to that, can lead to... If you read John's Gospel, that would be a false reading. The party in power is always the party most likely to do the persecuting. Who's in charge in the first century? Jews and Romans. They're going to do the persecuting. They're in charge. So Caiaphas and Annas, they are culpable. Pilate, he is culpable, but every single person in the room this afternoon is as guilty as them in putting Jesus on the cross. It is my guilt that put Jesus there. It's your guilt that put Jesus there. He is our Lamb of God. So if you ever catch yourself looking down on the Jews, go, uh uh. John 18. We're all responsible. Okay, point three, the best of humanity. Verse 25. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. All four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, contain this story. But John's is very different. It's lean. Okay, no fluff. There's no Peter calling down curses or making oaths. All we've got is a 44-gallon drum. It's full of fire. There are hands over it being warmed and then suddenly something catches and Peter's face lights up. You're a disciple of Jesus. You cut off my niece's or nephew's ear. Peter says, I'm not. I'm not. 
The dramatic contrast, isn't it? Jesus stands up to his questioners and denies nothing. Peter cowers before his questioners, denies everything. So why is the gospel writers, why are the gospel writers wanting us to focus on the failure of Peter? What would you do? You'd just bury it, wouldn't you? This is a real dud of a scene in your life story. You just airbrush it out, get rid of that. Or do what our modern world does when someone makes a mistake, footballer, politician, church at fora. Folks, that's not who I am. That's not who we are. Well, who was Peter? Some of us think Peter's a wimp. Some of us will think Peter's crazy. I think I was a bit harsh on Peter last week, actually. I said, he's a man of action, not a thinker. I think that's a bit harsh, actually, because by calling him names, I distance myself from him. If I was to read John's Gospel again, who's Peter? He's the best of humanity. He's the best of humanity. He's one of Jesus' first disciples. In John 6, when Peter's when Jesus' followers were all kind of dissipating, it's Peter who says, I'm not going anywhere. Where else would I go? You've got the words to eternal life, Jesus. In John chapter 13, Jesus is washing the disciples' feet. They're sitting there like stunned mullets. Who stands up and goes, this is backwards? It's Peter. In John chapter 13, Peter says, I'll lay down my life for you, Jesus. In John 18, Peter steps forward to face the Roman soldiers. Stupid, but he's the only one who does it. Peter is courageous, wholehearted, spiritually deceptive and loyal. If you're going into battle, who do you want next to you? You want Peter. He's not going nowhere. But in John 18, we see the failure of the best of men. His betrayal of Jesus was a failure of loyalty. It was a failure of courage. It was an anticipated failure, John 13. But it was remarkably sudden, wasn't it? But it was a considered failure. He had time between denial one and two. It was emphatic, I am not. It was repeated, I am not, I am not, I am not. It was a spiritual failure. Peter recognised him as God. Our 21st century would say, oh, it's just not who Peter was. You know what the Bible says? It's precisely who he was. Because the best of humanity has a sinful heart. The best of humanity has a sinful heart. So why are the gospel writers wanting us to focus on the failure of Peter? Good question, isn't it? Have you got an answer? It's because Peter is the type of person Jesus died for. He's the type of person Jesus forgives, restores, invites to his table forever. Jesus did not die for the sinless. He does not die for the self-righteous. He dies for the failure. For those who turned up to church for this afternoon with guilt. Peter could not die for Jesus until Jesus died for him. 
He could not be a Christian unless Jesus washed him. He could not serve Jesus until Jesus served him. And that is no different for us. So the Christian faith, it speaks honestly about who we are. The Bible never airbrushes your life. It doesn't wipe out your failures and your flaws and your frailty. And gosh, that's deeply refreshing. Maybe for the only time this week you can walk through a door and not have to fake it. You never have to fake it at church because the Bible never airbrushes your life. But we live in a different culture, isn't it? Secular orange doesn't agree with it. It doesn't believe that you have a fundamental fault. That you and me and everyone else in orange is fundamentally flawed morally and spiritually. And you know what that creates? It creates self-righteousness, judgmentalism and unforgiving finger-pointing. Where do you guys see that? For those of you on social media, you just have to scroll. It's there all the time. It all comes from a lack of honesty about self. So if you ever feel yourself judgmental or self-righteous or finger-pointing, that comes from that lack of honesty of who you are. But by recognising the honest facts about who we are, we can seek help. Accurate diagnosis equals accurate treatment. So, tonight, what advice will you give your children when they fail? What will you give your friends when they fail this week? Will you say, try harder? Oh, that's not you. Blame someone else. Jesus says, when people fail, bring them to me. He went to the cross for the worst of humanity and the best of humanity. Secularism, that's not you. It's a total placebo. It doesn't work. Jesus offers his life. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you so much that you went through these horrible, horrible betrayals as your son alone in justice to save those who never deserve it. Lord God, we just want to fight any essence of self-righteousness. Give us the ability to be honest about ourselves. And help us see the wonder of Jesus Christ, our Saviour. Amen.